0: John Martin has focused on software supply chain, DevSecOps security champions, and cloud security monitoring. He's a frequent speaker on the topic of commercial software security and a contributor on many safe code and CSA efforts. John joins us to discuss the prevention of a cyberpocalypse. You heard it correctly. Now tune in to learn what the heck a cyberpocalypse actually is and why you need to care about it. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with john martin are you trying to build a security champions program everyone is these days one challenge of rolling out security champions is how do we educate all these new folks security journey has your answer we provide a security dojo environment with level-based security education that gives your newfound champions a path to follow and the best part It requires almost zero administration by you. Visit www.securityjourney.com to set up a demo and learn how you can use the security dojo to connect with your security champions. Hey, folks. Welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo, CEO of Security Journey and co-host of the podcast. I'm also joined by Robert. Hey, Robert. Hey, Chris. Yeah, it's Robert Hurlbut, uh, Threat Mulling Architect. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you back uh, with us here again. And today we're going to talk about a word that I don't even know if it's a real word, but we're going to figure it out as we go. And that is this idea of a cyberpocalypse. But We'll get there, but first we're going to have our guest John Martin answer the question that you're all waiting to hear, and that is, John, how did you get started in this wacky, wacky world of security?
1: Well, hi, Chris. Hey, guys. Um, So, so like most people, I started out as a child.
0: (laughs) You started as a child. Okay, that's good. (laughs) Were you doing security at that point as a consultant, or uh...
1: (laughs) so? So seriously. Back in back in the days of, of dial-up and all of that good stuff, bulletin board systems, I just discovered I had a talent for taking things apart and putting them back together. So pretty much that talent led me over to cybersecurity. Um, back in the, the early 90s, I, I uh, formed, as far as I know, one of the very first um, cybersecurity consulting businesses. We had a number of clients in the in the North Dallas area, and, and many of those uh, clients, led us to the ability to really sharpen our talents and and to really start discovering very early that companies, systems, people, uh, can, their lives can be changed um, by simple security oversights, by the way we build software, and and how and and really how that impacts gosh just just everything people do and say and, and and this is back in the 90s right um at one point we were able to attack and and as a result of that attack harden alliance airport we were able to go through and compromise every router at the airport now if you don't know if you remember in the old days routers always had a uh, telephone jack in the back of them oh yeah and uh it was simple to inject commands into that. You own one, then you own the whole the whole network of them because they all shared. You know, if they were passworded, they all shared the same password, and so we were able to compromise businesses. We were able to do a lot of stuff just through through single, simple faults and configuration vulnerabilities. And and I think part of the reason why we're here today is because those experiences are just are just magnified today, right? Um, the sophistication of of not just software, but but the the hacking community, the defensive community, the the white hats, the black hats, the gray hats, the you know the no hats it's 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 just gotten frankly way out of hand, and I think that that's why we're here today to talk about some of this stuff.
0: And so it sounds like kind of the way you're describing your history that you came from the. They kind of the more the breaker side of of the world of cybersecurity. And so have you had experience kind of on the builder side as well, or is your is your history been primarily breaker, which then translated into helping bigger style companies set policy and do that type of stuff?
1: Well if I mean if you're going to break something and put it back together, then you, you have to know how it works, right? And the logical extension of that is, is leading different organizations, leading different companies to build software smarter, better, and faster, including and securing it better, including building software right the first time. One of the real challenges in modern software development is, is a concept that I, I think of as, as deferred responsibility. It's, it's, it's the need to realize income today off of a current product, so that you can improve the product down the line. At least that's the concept. How that plays out in the real world is that we build a, build the software, we deliver the software, but we know we can't do anything about any defects. So we write in the contracts that you, the user of the software, have no rights. And if you do discover a problem, you have to report it back to us and not to you know the press or the public. We we have a real, I think, moral issue in software development today. And to, uh, to your question, I think along the way I've I built uh, security champion programs, uh, agile uh, software development programs back in the day, um, DevSecOps programs currently. I've advised oh, a dozen or so companies on on how to really how to how to pull their bootstraps up and create a, a modern software development environment where they were really struggling before. So, yeah, if you, if you if you're going to break it, you got to be able to fix it.
0: And that's that's something that you that you just said that really really kind of spoke to me here the idea because I think that's that's the way it should be when I look across our offensively minded community. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually the case though. Like people, everybody's so gung-ho and excited about breaking and let's, you know, I want to be on a red team and I want to be a pen tester and, and all of those are good things. But one of the soapboxes I keep coming back to is there's a lot more to this than the flashy find the vulnerabilities and, you know, hack the Gibson. There's just more to putting it back together.
1: You're so right. You're so right. And and, and I'm glad Robert's on the call because one of the least sexy things and yet one of the most critical things is what Robert specializes in, and that's threat modeling. If I don't know what my software what environment that it's going to be published in, if I don't know what, this, what the, the impact of bad code is going to be, why am I building the software? It's morally indefensible.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to get Robert to wear a T-shirt that says Threat Modeler for Life or Threat Modeling for Life or something.
1: But. <laughs> now, I shouldn't have a side conversation with, with Robert because cause I don't think threat, threat modeling goes far enough today. Um, I really think that it needs to be more inclusive of the full spectrum of threats and privacy issues.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think I already own that shirt. but <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, can, can I tra- <laughs> yeah, we should we should sell them if, if we sold anything on the Application Security Podcast website, which we don't. That would be it. That would be maybe we'll maybe we'll make one of those shirts just for the fun of it. I think I think you should go for it. I think we should too. I'm gonna have to assign that as homework to somebody else. But the the topic here, John, that we wanted to talk with you about is something that you're calling the cyber. Apocalypse, <laughs> and so I don't know if this is actually a word, but just so our listeners know, we had Steve Lipner on to talk about the history of SDL a number of episodes ago here, and after that, uh, John and Steve, John kind of sent an email to Steve just to say, hey, you know, love the podcast, and happened to CC me, and they began what turned into a multi-email. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of words at at different times of a debate about the the need for legislation to say how software had to be protected and it was just a fascinating debate for me and i just sat there like a lurker and didn't even didn't even respond or anything and just read this this dialogue back and forth but then i got to the end and i said we got to talk about this in a podcast and so that's why we're here today and so john what is this idea of a cyber apocalypse
1: that's 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 a great question and and in truth i did not invent the term um in fact, I think that the first use of cyber apocalypse, I remember it's like at a black hat or something around 2013, 2014, there was a giant Lego apocalypse thing that they were calling the cyber apocalypse. So so I didn't invent the term, but I think it's 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 appropriate for what we're facing today. If we think about things like technology debt, right, how much old code is currently in use? How much old, vulnerable code is currently exploitable today? If we think about new code that's that's being pushed out into production, and the sheer volumes of, of of that code, the sheer volumes of software that's going live today. If we think about the 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 breadth and depth of that software, our cars run on it, our homes run on it, infrastructure runs on it. I can't get electricity without it then it becomes, I think, truly stunning how dependent our our entire civilization is at this point, in every continent on the planet, how dependent we are on software. And the software is apparently pretty bad. And, 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 and I mean, the evidence for that is pretty clear. Just 10 years ago, the cybersecurity business was a total of about, what, $30 billion or something like that. And now... I mean, now it's projected out to be something like 100 billion or 200 billion um, by by next the end of next year. It's 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 an incredible incredible waste of money. I read on Forbes and you know the the Wall Street Journal how how this is a new emerging market and how that's a really good thing that that we can invest money in this and make money. But they're ignoring the elephant in the room, and and that is that that these problems should not exist every breach that I've ever seen, every penetration that I've ever seen, every every cyber bad thing that I've ever seen really comes down to one or more of three things. Bad code, poor configurations of of systems in the code, and of course, people. So if we can solve any one of those three, we're in much better shape than we were, right? So if I can solve the bad code problem, Then we just have to worry about two of those things, configurations and people. If we can solve configurations and code, then all we have to do is worry about people. And if we can inform people, we're all pretty good at training stuff. I know you guys are expert at it. We can work on the people thing kind of organically, the way that we as people are built to do. But first we got to get a handle around the software, the configurations of the software.
0: And so when you think cyber apocalypse, are you thinking there's like a flash, there's, there's like a big event that happens like it's almost like a, it's only a matter of time until the wheels fall off on this, our, our dependence we have on software and we have some type of a big problem or issue? Is that kind of what you're thinking of?
1: I think that that's inevitable. Again, if, if we look at the sheer volumes of software being produced and kind of put that on a graph there comes a point, an inflection point, where the problems are, are, are rising faster than the, the solutions are. There, becomes a, there comes an inflection point, somewhere you know, in the next seven or eight years, where we're not gonna be able to manage software. Where when, as soon as we publish something, it will be owned and the results of it being owned is people's lives, people's jobs, people's retirements, people's memories, how many of you have your pictures stored on your hard drive? There was there was a, a couple of years ago, an older woman friend of mine um, called me up, and she said she said that she couldn't access her pictures anymore. The only picture she had of her husband, who had died a few years back, were on her hard drive, and 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 I went over there and got her computer and put it in my little lab here, and realized that that she had had some ransomware. Some one of the early ransomware variants had encrypted her hard drive. All the pictures that she had were inaccessible. She had taken it to a local repair shop before she called me. They had wiped the drive and then reinstalled Windows on the drive. In the process of wiping the drive, they they erased the crypt store, which which that particular ransomware variant uh, used to store the encryption keys. The net result is all of her memories of her husband were gone, all of those pictures were gone. All, their, all of her childhood was gone. This this affects people's lives. This is not just a number, you know, how much profit we can make on on software today. This affects people's lives. I believe the, the number I read was 40% of all companies that get a ransomware attack go out of business. That's not my number. Um, Check it, Google it, make sure I'm right. But if that's true, then how many jobs are being lost? How many jobs are being lost in five years? How many jobs are being lost 10 years from now? I believe that we're reaching an inflection point. I don't know if it's a apocalypse. That might be a bit of hyperbole. But regardless, we're reaching a point of, of almost no return. If we don't get our hand, arms around this pretty soon, we're going to be in real problems.
0: Whenever I speak to a room full of high school students or college, early college students, and they ask, hey, what what do you think we should go into? I'm like, application slash product security, because in 50 years from now, we will not have solved this thing, and you can then retire a happy and very wealthy individual. Chris,
1: I hope to God you're wrong.
0: (laughs) I do, too. I do, too, but the realist in me says... You know, things...
1: Man, I got to tell you, the stupidest career, it, I think it's just absolutely stupid that we need this many cybersecurity experts. I think as a society, we're just doing stupid stuff. We're shooting ourselves in the foot and then, and then you know, saying, hey, congratulations, you can now wear different shoes it's 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 wrong
0: <laughs> so how do how, you mentioned deferred responsibility a little bit earlier but i'd love to hear more about that but how how do deferred responsibility and moore's revenge then play into what seems like this societal technical debt that you're describing sure
1: moore's revenge is a is a term um, a journalist came up with it i would guess four or five years ago to describe you know moore's law says that you know the complexity of of transistors on a chip is going to double every period, right, or quadruple, whatever that is. And that's going to grow our computing power nearly in an exponential manner. Uh, and And that's held pretty true. Moore's Revenge says that for every doubling of computer power, we have a quadrupling of the attack surface. And so as our computing capabilities just grow and grow and grow, the attack surface on those capabilities grows even faster. So far, Moore's revenge is actually holding pretty true. And, and what, what happens is is that unless we can start reducing the attack surface, unless we can start actively eliminating the, the, the ways that software can be compromised, we're gonna quickly be in a position where any software that gets published gets compromised at the point of publication. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, definitely a scary proposition to think about, though, that the idea that any software in the future, could could we could reach a point where software is compromised right upon release. What are some of the ways that you're thinking about that we could prevent this – I don't even want to call it dystopian. That's the wrong word. I don't know, this very frightening – Future world where software vulnerabilities just completely run amok throughout all of technology.
1: That's I think the million dollar question, and and most major companies have been advocating you know good code in their supply chains. Um, they send out questionnaires to make sure that their suppliers follow you know software develop prescribed software development life cycles. Um, as buyers of software, most large companies are trying to do the right thing, their challenge is, is that they don't have the contractual ability to validate that their suppliers are actually doing the right thing. So, for example, the company I used to work for, uh, my teams would send out questionnaires to a software supplier. Inevitably, some junior sales clerk fills out the questionnaire and sends it back. My analysts look at it and say, oh, no, 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 that's not right. And so we are now in a dialogue with this supplier, almost 100 percent. Initially, it was 96 percent of all the software that we were purchasing when we put it on the bench and did pen test against it. We found one or more egregious defects, defects that could compromise the entire implementation and anything that was trusted by that software. That that improved, we began to work with our suppliers. This is going back about 14 years. We began to work with our suppliers one-on-one to make their software better, to help them to sort of see the light, to help them to understand that we were not going to accept bad code. The good news is, is that we, over the years, we've seen a five-fold increase in the quality of software. The bad news is, is that that's still 70 some percent fail rate.
0: How do you measure the quality of software when you say 5x increase? What are the metrics you're using to be able to, to make that judgment?
1: One or more defects that would compromise the implementation. That if, if you've got, if you've got a, a defect significant enough to compromise the implementation, to compromise, compromise anything that's trusted by that implementation of software, then you fail. That's simple. So we did, obviously, a lot of pen testing, a lot of deconstructing on software, and we did a lot of discussions with a lot of vendors. Remember that, and, and, and paradoxically, the security vendors seem to be the worst. So I'm not going <laughs> to give you any numbers, but, but just anecdotally, I will tell you that, that, that our findings said that security vendors were more than three to one, more likely to have a significant defect than, say, an engineering software.
0: And I can tell you, and I, I know you know already, but I can tell you kind of from my perspective why that is, because I've heard <laughs> that statement so many times that in a, in a previous uh, professional uh, setting, oh, well, you know, we're, we're actually a security product. That's, that's the <laughs> excuse that, that this people would say. And I'd be like, yeah, and that means you need to follow our secure development lifecycle even tighter than other people do but that was the part that they didn't hear.
1: Yeah, it's like arresting a lawyer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> They're already writing briefs and motions in the back seat of the car.
1: Exactly. So so because of all of that, you know, your your original question was what do I think we should be doing, right? I think we've gone past the point of saying of giving guidance to the industry. I think we've gotten well past that. The industry is motivated, financially motivated to be bad actors. They're financially motivated to be morally bankrupt. They're financially motivated to defer responsibility to the next generation. So I think that that in order to get around that, we need to do a couple of things. And I think that, unfortunately, that starts with legislation. I am, I am the person least likely to ever recommend a legislative answer to anything. But I think that that, that makes really good sense in the same way that in the same way that we legislate minimum quality for for automobile tires. I remember my my grandfather had a car he used to carry four or five we were lived we lived way out in the country and he used to carry sometimes four or five spare tires in the vehicle because he knew that on any significant journey we'd have a fair number of blowouts you don't see that today i don't have a spare tire in my car at all and the reason for that is is that we legislate minimum quality on tire manufacturers there's a minimum standard that's that's got to be met and more importantly i think there's a there's a good clear definition of what liability is for a bad tire right if a bad if a tire blows out that t- that manufacturer is at least in part responsible for the consequences of that blowout. And 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 you know, I, I I hate the thought of legislating, but maybe that's what we need to legislate. So if we're going to do that, I think we've got to do really four things. I think we've got to define in that legislation, we've got to define what safe software means, right? What's the actual definition of safe software, right? What's what's a quality tire built out of? Right. What are the standards for that? Then we've got to turn around and we've got to say, OK, given that that we know what's what good means, given that we know what quality means, what does liability mean in this context? And I think that 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 that's a key concept that's got to be understood. And that's something that's got to be, I think, legislated. Uh, if we rely on the courts, well, we went through, what, 50 years of, of court cases on t- on tires. Um with with no good result, I think it's got to be legislated. And then third, I think we've got to establish a set of minimum test and production uh, standards for software, just the way they do with tires and automobiles and aircraft engines, etc. Anything that's critical infrastructure has a minimum standard architecture that's set. So we've got to establish what that looks like. And finally, that that legislation has got to provide a method of oversight and a potential penalty for for missing those targets for missing that and that, that would include you know recall capability i think that that if we go to the the very fundamentals of software development we've got a chance of dealing with this we still have we still have decades on decades of legacy code we've got that all that technology debt still out there but we can say, from this point forward we 're going to start doing the right thing so i don 't know if that 's the greatest solution, but frankly it 's the only one I can think of
0: yeah i 've got a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of things that are rushing through my mind right now, but i 'll just kind of i 'll throw one at you that is going to be a an obvious very early response to this kind of a, of a proposal.
1: More than what Lipner did?
0: <laughs> yeah, more than I don't even, you know, I, I just read his kind of from a summary perspective. But when I think about innovation, right, what does this do to innovation and the ability to create new things? Does this squash innovation in any way because that's that's one of the initial things i would see any company coming back at this type of a of a setup and saying well you're gonna you're gonna squash our ability to create anything new and cool and you're going to cause us to stagnate as an organization
1: so i think it's the antithesis of that um look at what automobiles have done over the last i'll call it 10 years um we have gone from a very, very standard way to build cars, and now we're seeing you know complete revolutions in, in personal transport. Um, just in my house, there's what, three electric bicycles, uh, an old pickup, a uh, a modern uh, hybrid car. You know, the, the just just the personal transport world has has changed dramatically. And this is in a highly regulated environment. My my experience is, is that people that complain the most about the new regulations are rarely the innovators. The people that complain the most are usually those who are heavily invested in the status quo. And my answer to them was innovate. If you find a market, hit the market. Just don't do it in a way that compromises the rest of us. If you can find a cleaner way to produce a coal furnace and factory, go for it just don't compromise the rest of us
0: now when i think about your four the four points here um i think of you know the two three and four i think are the easy parts Right the liability and and what does that mean? what are the limits, what are the levels, minimum test and production standards you could you could argue that we have that in the industry now we'd have to we'd have to you know probably document it a different way, and then even method of oversight, penalty for missing. I mean, we've got lots of government agencies that are good at doing that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the real difficult part of this is how do you define safe software because you can't say safe software is vulnerability free software because that's like saying safe software is bug free software and i f- truly believe as long as human beings are behind writing software that we will never reach a nirvana point of you know there are no there are no vulnerabilities in this product i just don't think I don't think you can get there unless, you know, we did formal methods, right, back in the 70s and 80s in the government space. And look where that got us. Some really super high-level secure systems that nobody could do anything fun with. I mean, it huge. Was- <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, those things are filled up a warehouse somewhere, right? Those systems that were, that were rated as – I think we did. we ever get to an A1 system? I know there were some B1s. I think there was one A1 system going back to the Orange Book and the Trusted Computing Systems kind of days when I first got my start in, in computing or in security. And, and those A1 systems, I don't know where anybody ever used them because you really couldn't do much with it, right? But you had the formal methods to back it up. So we're, we're, how do we even get there? Um, John, from kind of this perspective of defining safe software,
1: right? So, so if you think about you know the Rainbow series, it was mostly about, you know, or huge chunks of that were devoted to things like access control and who can do what, and you know elevation of privileges and that sort of thing, right? Elevation, degradation of privileges, privilege management, all that stuff. In fact, I've got a copy of the of the whole series here if you want.
0: <laughs> I've still got an orange book on my <laughs> shelf over here too. So,
1: so the definition of safe. I think I think I could come up with three or four definitions I'm sure you could as well. The question is what can the, what can we come up with collectively that makes sense. Does not stifle innovation and and at the same time is manageable by us as humans, right? Or even even through our automation. So so you're right. The definition of safe is is huge. It's it's really it's a difficult thing to do but it's a doable thing to do. We managed to do that, You know, I'll, I'll say this, we managed to do that in in all sorts of things. Um, we all buy electrical outlets, they're UL listed as being safe. We all purchase, I just had to rewire my house and, and put in a new big panel. Um, it's it's was inspected after the job was complete and deemed safe, right? We have yep. we have civil codes, we have all sorts of codes that we can rely on to say this is what we mean by safe in the legal sense. The liability part of that is the part that, that is probably going to be the most controversial because we now we're talking dollars. Now we're talking talking the ability of a software company to to be able to acquire angel financing. To be able to, you know, start up to acquire financing, an uh, established company to be able to introduce a new product line. Um, once we start getting the lawyers involved, things get complicated. That's you know, just how it is. Look at the FCC as a great example of that. And so, so from a practical point of view, I think I think the liability statements are are really much more difficult. From a philosophical point of view, it's pretty simple. You damage somebody, you're liable for the damage.
0: I think if I had to solve this problem, and I only had one or two minutes <laughs> to, to describe my explanation, which I'm sure we'd have weeks, if not months to, to actually formulate this, but I'm almost thinking about the secure development lifecycle as your building code. And so it's going to change. that. What defines a proper secure development lifecycle is going to change just like the building codes change over time. But I would be more interested in defining, hey, what is the process and standard that you have to comply with? Because I know you're never going to be able to say, hey, no vulnerabilities, right? That just, that just starts to break down. But if we had assurance that you were doing the right things from an SDL perspective, that would get us, I think, 90% of the way there towards... A, a much more secure future. Chris,
1: Chris, I've got to tell you, I disagree. And, and here's why. We've been testing software for a long, long, long time. Most of the company's software that we've been testing have established SDLs. They're proud of their stuff. They're proud of the way it's developed. And yet we keep finding problems with it. I think, I think sometimes we conflate the ideal with, with the results. We say, if you use this process, we guarantee the results are going to be this shape. Uh, it's sort of that that ISO nine thousand one kind of viewpoint. If I if I build parts for an aircraft according to this process, there will be no rejected parts when the aircraft manufacturer receives those parts. And yet, and yet, as we all know, whether it's a whether it's an automobile or an aircraft or or a furnace, there's tons of rejected parts produced by ISO certified manufacturing facilities so so I think we've got to somehow figure out a way to measure results at least samples of results right so let's say you've got a highly automated DevOps production line you've got trusted trusted repositories you've got trusted trusted componentry sitting in those repositories you can build code from trusted trusted pieces and put it all together in a really really bad way. And produce the most vulnerable stuff that's ever been written, especially when we start talking about protocol integration and stuff like that. Anything that reaches outside the software, anything is in that extended chain of trust, um, becomes extremely vulnerable. So, so I, I totally agree with the concept, and in the ideal world, you're absolutely correct.
0: Now I'll I do agree with you that everybody's got an SDL, but the point I will make is. Is everybody using the SDL with everything that they're creating to the same level of rigor and measuring that process? And in my experience, the answer is not even close. (laughs) So the the SDL is a picture on the website that we share with customers that says we take security seriously. But if you dig in and say, okay, well, is this 100% across the board? So that's what I'm saying is I think SDL could get you to the solution. Not in the way that it's done today, where it's more of a it's more of a sales feature <laughs> without the traceability that gets me back to the fact that hey, this is actually being implemented. So I believe in the concept. I think where we fall down today is we don't have the traceability to say this is actually being used in a hundred percent of the things that a given supplier is providing.
1: Exactly, and, and you know, Robert, this is where you jump in and say, yeah, but threat modeling will help that because you're absolutely and, and, and- I hope you do because it's absolutely the truth. Absolutely. A good, a good threat model says these are the things that we need to be looking at in terms of security features, in terms of se- secure production, in terms of testing at the middle and end of production. These are the, these are these, the elements that, we need, that need to be trustworthy in this computing system. Whether it's, whether it's a privacy concern, whether it's it's a, a hacking concern, whether it's it's a, a trust issue, whether it's a data disclosure issues, whether it's the potential for bad configurations to be automatically produced at, at every endpoint. You know, the promise of DevSecOps is that, that we can produce secure code very, very quickly and we can misconfigure it every time.
0: I don't see that, that's never put on the tagline. <laughs> anyway, I never see that advertised. <laughs>
1: So so the the prevention I think is 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 all about is all about testing and certification I can't I can't make a major change to my house without oh. that being certified by, by numerous groups you know and an inspector comes out and says yeah you've done it right how much more important is the software that we all use that we all rely on that's embedded in everything we do from the from the systems that's recording this conversation doing the transcriptions all the way out to to my automated door locks
0: so it sounds like you're you're saying if we draw this this parallel to the building world where you have standards and then you have inspectors who are coming out and validating that you did the work correctly is that is that kind of where you're landing from a recommendation perspective about how this could actually be done?
1: Yeah, yeah, if we look at the industry as a whole, um, we can't we can't do advisory sorts of things. That's we, we have a long history of failing at that. How many ISO standards, how many NIST NIST recommendations can we ignore and still produce software? Because we've been ignoring them for years and years and years. ISO twenty seven oh thirty-four is a great example of that. It's how to build software securely. I cannot think of a single shop that embraces all of ISO 27034, including the shops of the, of the people that, that authored the document. So I think legislatively is, is what we've got to do. I just don't see a way around it. So I think that, that you know, where do we go from here? If, if indeed that, that's, that's the case, right? And I think that that's just something we should have a great discussion about. But if that's the case, then then where do we go from here, right? How do we how do we begin to craft a solution that's going to be acceptable to to the world, something that's that's bowl, right? We can't go on producing documents that, that and advisories that nobody reads or uses. That's that's just not good business.
0: So, is there a place where there is some type of dialogue happening about this topic right now? If we have some passionate listeners who are listening to us, yelling into their to the speakers, trying to get the message <laughs> back to us, is there some place that that's happening right now, anywhere in the world?
1: If there is, I don't know about it. Um, I do know that organizations like SafeCode.org and organizations like Cloud Security Alliance are, are a great place to. To begin talking to people, the this is this is you know, on on the technical advisory groups um, within those two organizations. We have a lot of discussion around root causes and things like that. So, if you want to get involved, to our audience, if you want to get involved, um, and you need and you as your organization need to do this under an NDA, then then join SafeCode.org. That's that's the one way that you can have these discussions and maintain your the confidentiality required to be candid about the discussions. If you have no 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 big need for for you know corporate type of privacy, then uh, join Cloud Security Alliance. I think that that's that's probably where the best discussions are going to be happening over the short term. I'd like to be to see a lot of this kind of discussion going on in IEEE and some of the other. Uh, organizations, but I haven't seen it yet.
0: John, thank you for uh, taking the time today to introduce us to this idea of cyber apocalypse and the different things that can happen. I know you've kind of stretched my brain here a little bit as we're thinking about the ramification of of this, and it's definitely something that we, as a community, need to embrace and get in front of because it's not something we want legislators sending to us and saying well we thought about what safe software is and here's our definition that we wrote and so we got to grab a hold of this and do something with it ourselves yeah
1: yeah we've gone through a lot of that the royce amendment and a whole bunch of things there's a there's a group over in in northern virginia advocating for if you write code you must sign your code and we'll have a packing list of signatures that go out with every software product but you know if you're signing bad code you're already the company's already compromised and that's like saying, you know, we captured that murderer after he killed twenty-two people. Aren't we cool?
0: Yeah, it doesn't really give you that type of satisfaction. You know, you caught the person, but it would have been nice if you would have caught them before. Kind of the the Tom Cruise movie what was it, Minority Report, where they could tell if you were going to commit a crime in right, the future. Right,
1: right, right. So, so we need a little bit of Minority Report, and and we we regardless of what else we do, we need to get. A moral sea change. We need to stop endorsing the concepts of deferred responsibility. We need to, we as as software, you know, in some cases manufacturers of software builders of of coders, we need to to subscribe to a clear moral principle of uh, fix it now, and I don't have to I don't have to fool with it later.
0: Yeah, that's a great summary of our conversation today. Well, John, thanks for taking the time to be with us here. And we look forward to continuing this dialogue with you in the future.
1: Yeah, it's a plan, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. You'll find the show on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at wwwsecurityjourneycom application security podcast. You can also find Chris on Twitter at Edgeroute and Robert at Robert Hurlbutt. Remember, security is a journey, not a destination.